Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are picking up where we left off in our two-part podcast on the evacuation of Dunkirk, known as the Miracle of Dunkirk or Operation Dynamo, at least in the UK and the US, not necessarily known by that name, other places. Last time we talked about the beginnings of World War II and how from May 9th to 10th, 1940, Germany invaded Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium, and France. And then over the next 10 days, basically plowed right through the Allied defense with advanced units making it all the way to the English Channel. This was an efficient, highly strategic maneuver uh, on Germany's part to win very quickly because Germany knew it could not outlast its enemies in a drawn-out war. So if you have not heard that episode, this one will probably make basic sense. This is where most of the movies, books, and TV shows about the evacuation of Dunkirk start off anyway. But those first weeks of World War II tend to be glossed completely over, particularly for Americans, since the United States had not joined the war yet at that point. Plus, it is often portrayed as France just sort of rolling over and surrendering immediately with no resistance, which is not accurate. So if you would like to know more about that, it is back in part one. And we have the same caveat here as part one. Even at two parts, this stretch of history is just incredibly complicated. There are multiple multi-hundred-page books that get into all the fine details of all the individual towns and troop movements and military decisions. So we're trying to strike a balance with these two episodes between the two main modes of telling this story, one of which is basically three sentences, and the other is 700 pages of more detail than you could possibly want. After the first German forces plowed through France and reached the English Channel, the Allied forces in France and Belgium were left in disarray. Not only did they hold no central point from which to rally, but they were increasingly cut off from one another, with communication and supply lines disrupted. They were also being surrounded and pushed toward the sea, with German forces moving in from multiple directions. If you look at maps of how this progressed, the arrows representing Germany essentially move in from all sides, through the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. Germany also dropped pamphlets to that effect, showing the Allied positions surrounded by Germany, urging them to surrender. Yeah, if you've seen one of the many trailers for Dunkirk where you see somebody holding this this pamphlet that's been dropped out of an airplane that basically is like, here's us, here's you, you should surrender, like that is based on a real thing. On May 21st, 1940, the Allies tried to mount a counterattack near Arras in northwestern France. From the start, this was a long shot. Many of the tanks involved had been moved to Belgium earlier in May to fight the German invasion there. Then they were moved back into France when it became clear that Germany's efforts in Belgium were a diversion, with the primary attack really coming into France through the Ardennes in the southeast. That was about 300 miles of travel over the course of 10 days without a lot of opportunity for repair or maintenance. The Allied force was able to inflict heavy damage at the start of the fighting. But soon, tanks started to break down, and the German force, which had been thrown into confusion in the initial assault, regrouped. The German force's superior numbers in terms of both men and tanks soon overwhelmed the Allies, who once again had to fall back. 
However, the Allied counterattack had done enough damage in those first hours that the German high command started to fear that if they had more armored divisions in one place, the Allies might actually turn things around. So from Germany's point of view, it became even more critical to win and win quickly. It was clear at this point that the Allied forces just did not have the strength to repel the German army, not in the state that they were in, encircled, divided, and being driven toward the coast. The German military was faster, more nimble, and in general, better prepared, and France and Britain were still reeling from having fallen directly into Germany's trap. So, on May 23rd, 1940, rather than continuing to fight what was obviously a losing battle, General John Gort, commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force, recommended that they withdraw back to Britain. Although this was a unilateral decision that disregarded France's plan to continue fighting, it was not a hasty one. Gort had presented this as the wisest option as early as the 19th, and non-combat personnel had begun to be evacuated at that time. From the British point of view, the proposed evacuation was not an abandonment of France or of the war effort. Britain would still be fighting alongside France by sea and by air. But it seemed clear that the only other options in terms of ground troops were surrender or death. In either of those scenarios, hundreds of thousands of soldiers would either be killed or imprisoned, leaving Britain with almost no infantry or armored divisions. In that scenario, Britain expected that Germany would invade and Britain wouldn't have the means to stop it. So retreating back across the channel was a tactical move to get the British Expeditionary Force out of harm's way, at least relatively speaking, so they could plan a strike against Germany that would actually work. From the French point of view, Britain was abandoning them to face Germany alone. Between May 23rd, when General Gort called for an evacuation, and May 26th, when Winston Churchill authorized it to begin, the British Expeditionary Force made preparations to escape. With the loss of the Port of Calais, Dunkirk was the last port that the Allies could access. The Allies reinforced the canals around Dunkirk, moved troops and equipment into position, and gathered as many watercraft as possible. This included a lot of smaller military vessels that were to be used as tenders, ferrying men from the port to the larger ships awaiting off the coast. The initial plan was to use Dunkirk's port to remove 45,000 troops over the span of two days. This was not anywhere close to the number of troops still left in Belgium and France, but Germany was rapidly closing in from multiple directions. Many of the British troops were just too far away to make it to Dunkirk before Germany's inevitable victory there. This really seemed certain, especially since some panzer brigades had already reached the defensive line around Dunkirk. But on May 24th, there was a pause in the relentless German assault. The advanced troops fell back, and for about 48 hours, the bulk of the German ground force stayed put. There continues to be debate about exactly why this was. If Germany had pressed ahead, Dunkirk would have fallen before many troops could have been evacuated. But instead, Germany stopped. In all likelihood, it was probably a combination of several of the most likely factors. There was the practical need to refuel and maintain the panzers that had gotten ahead and to generally resupply. It's also likely that the German army thought it would be possible to stop the evacuation by destroying the ships from the air. The area around Dunkirk was surrounded by canals that the tanks couldn't cross without pontoon bridges, and it was also marshy and easily flooded, leading to fears that the tanks could become mired during an assault. 
The Allied success in the early hours of the counterattack at Arras may have raised fears that another stronger counterattack was being planned. And there are various contradictory theories about how Hitler was regarding Britain at this point, whether he was perhaps hoping to negotiate a peace and stayed his hand with the hope of using it as a tool during negotiations. Of course, the counter-argument to that is that he would have had a much bigger card to play if he had just captured the British army. Regardless of what prompted it, that brief reprieve ultimately allowed far more troops to get to Dunkirk, and it gave the force already there more time to bolster the fortifications. And without this pause, the massive evacuation that we will talk about after a sponsor break could not possibly have taken place. May 27, 1940, was scheduled to be the first full day of Operation Dynamo's evacuations, which were being planned and overseen by Bertram Ramsey, Vice Admiral at Dover. But Captain William Tennant, who was responsible for managing the operations in the port at Dunkirk, arrived that day to find that the German Luftwaffe's air raids, which had gone on for more than 24 hours, had destroyed most of the port facilities. And as that was happening, the Belgian defense was crumbling. On May 27th, Belgium sued for an armistice, removing Belgium's fighting force from the defense. Belgium would surrender to Germany the following day. The entire situation immediately became more complicated. The destruction of Dunkirk's port made the evacuation of Allied troops vastly more difficult, and the newly opened hole in the Allied defense made it more precarious. Captain Tennant concluded that it would be far too time-consuming to move troops directly from the shore to the ships. The water near the shore was much too shallow for even most small boats to get close. Dunkirk's beaches were sandy and gently sloping, which made it a very popular vacation destination. But that shallow water meant that men would have to wade for up to 100 yards, even to get into a smaller vessel. And that smaller vessel would then need to carry its passengers to a larger vessel wading in deeper water. Plus, those larger vessels couldn't take a direct route between Dunkirk and Dover. Germany controlled the port at Calais to the south, along with much of the water around it, and could train guns on the French coast from its position at Calais. So ships going back to Britain had to take a very roundabout way, sometimes traveling far north along the French and Belgian coasts before turning to cross the Channel. A large-scale evacuation directly from the beaches was just not feasible. Ultimately, Captain Tennant decided to evacuate the troops from one of the breakwaters that protected Dunkirk Harbor. It was known as the East Mole. And this was a long jetty made from concrete, stone, and wood, with water on either side deep enough for destroyers to be moored there. It basically made a bridge from the shore out to waiting ships. And while some of those evacuating still did have to wade out into the water, sometimes for hours, the East Mole became the primary evacuation point. About 200,000 of the men evacuated were taken from the mole. Additional makeshift jetties were also constructed by driving vehicles into the water at low tide and then reinforcing them with wood and other materials. As British troops were able to reach Dunkirk, they gathered on the beaches, queuing up to await departure, and it was overall a harrowing wait. The men were hungry, thirsty, and dirty, and many were wounded. Although bad weather kept the Luftwaffe away for a couple of days during the evacuation, the area was otherwise under continual air assault. 
The air was clouded with smoke from burning oil tankers and smoldering ruined ships. The beach itself and the town of Dunkirk were also increasingly filled with derelict vehicles and other military equipment deliberately put out of commission to keep them from falling into the hands of Nazi Germany. It was immediately clear that the British Expeditionary Force would need more boats than it had to successfully evacuate. Even by mooring destroyers along the East Mole, removal of the troops was proceeding too slowly. Britain had already created a civilian small vessels register for the war effort, and on May 27th, the Admiralty began contacting people who had listed their boats. They would eventually broaden the net, putting out a call for any small vessel that was very shallow in the draft and could get close to the Dunkirk beaches. Owners were directed to take their boats to several staging areas before proceeding to Ramsgate, which was the departure point for the fleet of little ships. The little ships ultimately included civilian vessels of almost every conceivable use. There were yachts and other pleasure craft, fishing boats, lifeboats, ferries, fireboats, racing boats, and steamers. Some of the little ships were captained by their owners or day-to-day operators. This was particularly true of fishing boats, whose owners were well-experienced on the water already. Others were either handed over to or commandeered by the Royal Navy to be helmed by military personnel. Regardless of whether they were going all the way back to Dover or to a larger ship farther offshore, the little ships were critical to the evacuation effort, allowing far more men to be removed from Dunkirk and doing the job in incredibly dangerous circumstances. The evacuees weren't necessarily safe once they got onto a ship, though. Hitler had ordered Hermann Goering, the Luftwaffe commander-in-chief, to destroy the British Expeditionary Force. This he tried to do by bombing Dunkirk, primarily but not exclusively focusing on the ships out in the harbor. Men waiting on shore witnessed already loaded boats and ships being bombed and sunk with the survivors of the initial impact drowning or being crushed by debris before they could be rescued. This made later evacuees reluctant to go below decks once they were aboard themselves because it would be harder to escape if the ship that they were on were bombed or torpedoed. The destroyers that were pulling men from the East Mole weren't intended as troop transports, and with the men refusing to go below, their decks became so overloaded that there was no room to crew the ship's guns. It was also apparently a harrowing ride. Since they couldn't crew the guns, they had to do extra zigzagginess to get back across the channel, and since they were very top-heavy with tacking, so is many probably people, it was a, a lot crazy of careening move. going on. Yeah. On May 29th, the Luftwaffe's activity in Dunkirk reached its peak. Ten destroyers and eight personnel ships were either sunk or put out of commission on that one day, some by the Luftwaffe and some by Navy torpedoes. Even so, 47,000 troops were rescued just that day while under heavy fire. Throughout the evacuation, the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy tried to defend the transport ships by sea and air, with the RAF providing 24-hour air cover while consistently outnumbered by German aircraft. A lot of the RAF activity wasn't actually visible from the shore or the evacuation route, though, which led to the assumption that there was no air cover, even though the RAF lost 145 aircraft while defending the evacuation. As the evacuation wore on, this led to a lot of friction and hard feelings between the Air Force and the other branches of the British military. And there are a lot of stories about people disembarking one of the ships and running into a pilot and being like, where were you guys? And the answer is they were 
they were there. I was in the air. <laughs> the evacuation at Dunkirk was originally a British plan to save the British Expeditionary Force. But on May 29th, France, which had previously planned to stay and fight, joined the evacuation effort as well, contributing French ships to the effort and evacuating French personnel. France's involvement in the evacuation was marked as this whole period of the war with numerous miscommunications and misunderstandings. French troops arriving in Dunkirk on June 1st and 2nd believed they were going there to be evacuated, but they had really been sent to mount a counterattack. Another miscommunication played out on the night of June 2nd through 3rd, when French troops that were being evacuated were sent to the beaches, when the ships were really waiting at the East Mole. By the time the men learned where they were supposed to be and got to the Mole, the ships had left. This further heightened the sense of bitterness over Britain's decision to evacuate. French High Command gave the last remaining troops the order to evacuate on June 3rd. However, many of this last rear guard who tried to evacuate had their way blocked by deserters who had been hiding in Dunkirk and rushed the ships to try to get away. Many of these French troops were ultimately captured. Between May 26th and June 4th, 1940, 338,226 troops were evacuated from Dunkirk. 239,555 were taken from the harbor and 98,671 from the surrounding beaches. It was roughly a 60-40 split of British and French troops with a small number of troops from other nations as well. General Gort was evacuated on the 30th to keep him from being captured by the Germans both for strategic reasons and because it would have been hugely devastating to morale if that had happened. So this was far, far beyond the initial plan of 45,000 people rescued. And it was not by any stretch without consequences. And we'll talk about all of that after we first pause for a sponsor break. British propaganda surrounding the Dunkirk evacuation began almost immediately. The term Dunkirk spirit came into use, signifying a coming together to steadfastly face down adversity. The fleet of little ships became an emblem of bravery and perseverance that persists today. Today, there's even an association of Dunkirk little ships that mounted a smaller scale return to Dunkirk in 2010. On June 4th, 1940, the day the evacuation ended, Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave his famous We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech which is quite rousing. In it, he noted, quote, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. But there was a victory inside this deliverance, which should be noted. The victory inside this deliverance, though, was incredibly hard won. As some troops were waiting at Dunkirk to be evacuated, others, primarily British and French, we're defending a 25-mile, that's about 40-kilometer front around the perimeter of Dunkirk. And this was the absolute last line of defense, with the defenders' only job to hold off the Germans as long as possible to protect this evacuation. The British troops had received this order as, quote, you will hold your present position at all costs to the last man and last round. This is essential in order that a vitally important operation can take place. As the evacuation wore on, to the last man increasingly included men who were too wounded to get to an evacuation ship, along with medical personnel who had volunteered to stay. This defense force was also, relatively speaking, poorly armed. 
Tanks, anti-aircraft guns, and other heavy equipment had largely been destroyed or rendered inoperable before the evacuation began to keep it from being put into use by Germany, which meant that it also could not be put into use by the defenders. During the evacuation, 8,061 British troops and 1,230 Allied troops were killed. At the end of the war, at least 4,500 British troops who had been present in continental Europe in May of 1940 were missing with no known gravesite. Because they had been without real medical care for so long, injured British soldiers who did make it to Dover had often contracted gangrene or had wounds that were infested with maggots. But the French losses were much, much higher. About 40,000 French troops left behind during the evacuation became prisoners of war. Those who survived their time as POWs were not liberated until 1945. And in terms of the war up until that point, France had faced huge losses. From May 10th to June 4th, roughly 68,000 British troops were captured or killed. For the French, though, that number was more than 200,000. Germany lost far, far fewer troops during this time than either Britain or France. At least 240 vessels were lost during the Dunkirk evacuation, including nine destroyers, six from Britain and three from France. Another 26 destroyers were damaged. Of the 933 ships that took part in the evacuation, 236 were lost and 61 were put out of commission. Because of the number of men that needed to be evacuated and the constant pressure to remove them quickly before the Germans broke through, the Allies also left behind a wealth of equipment, including tanks and other vehicles, anti-aircraft guns, firearms, helmets, as much of it as possible rendered inoperable before leaving it behind. Food, fuel, and other supplies were also abandoned during the evacuation. To be clear, these were not small amounts. Approximately 60,000 vehicles, 2,500 guns, 76,000 tons of ammunition, and 400,000 tons of stores were left behind. What couldn't be destroyed was reclaimed by Germany. There were also whole groups of troops that were stranded during the defense of the evacuation and then were captured or killed. On May 28th, in Wormut, France, Roughly 30 kilometers southeast of Dunkirk, about 100 British and French soldiers who had been part of the rear guard were taken prisoner by the SS. Nearly all were killed in what came to be known as the Wormut Massacre, when the SS threw grenades into the barn where they were being held, then removed and shot the survivors in groups of five. Only 15 survived this initial massacre, but so many of them were severely injured that most of them had died within days of escaping. On May 31st, 35,000 troops were captured at Lille, roughly 80 kilometers southeast of Dunkirk, when they were cut off as the wider perimeter around Dunkirk collapsed. Germany, of course, also continued its assault on France after the evacuation was complete. On June 9th, the focus turned to Paris, with Italy also declaring war on France on June 10th. The French government fled on the 14th, France surrendered on June 22nd, with Hitler arranging for the surrender to be signed in the same train car on which Germany had surrendered at the end of World War I. This was a humiliating defeat for France, with the intentional use of the train car compounding that humiliation. But it was not at all the sudden arrival of troops on the steps of Paris, followed by an immediate surrender, as it is so often described. 
France's surrender upended Britain's plans for a return to fight on the ground after regrouping. Although the British Navy and the Royal Air Force continued the fight and ground combat continued in northern Africa and other parts of Europe, it would be nearly four years before Britain launched another major assault on the ground in France. That took place on the D-Day invasion of Normandy, an amphibious assault involving American, British, and Canadian forces, among others. Although Charles de Gaulle refused to accept the French surrender and continued to try to plan a French military resistance from Britain, after the surrender to Germany, the official French government continued to be led in Vichy, France, by Marshal Philippe Pétain, who cooperated with Nazi Germany and was later convicted of treason. My conjecture is that it is really possible that if the Vichy government had not started collaborating with the Nazis, the fall of France would be portrayed much more as a valiant but doomed effort, not as a cowardly surrender. I think that's a fair assessment. It is, that is largely like that, that move is, is kind of what's pointed to in terms of like, oh, look at these guys. They just do whatever just to stay alive. They'll, they'll collaborate with anybody. Uh, which is not accurate. After having previously lost more than 200,000 troops. Right. And of course, a German attack on Britain did arrive as feared, although it did not involve troops on the ground. The Battle of Britain and the Blitz stretched from July 1940 to May of 1941. So, while the evacuation of Dunkirk was a success and that it saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of Allied personnel far more than the original plan, it was also unquestionably a military catastrophe. Yeah. I don't think the movie is going to really frame it as a catastrophe, at least based on... I don't know. It's Christopher Nolan. He's not really like the, here's your happy ending kind of director. So we'll see. And I think, uh, what? yeah, I, we, we will see. Uh, do you have a miraculous email? I think it's from Julie. Julie wrote in and said, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I'm a sports radio host in Chicago who often works late into the night, and I rely on Miss Din History to get me through my 45-minute commute from downtown back to the suburbs almost every night. It just so happened I was driving home from my studio when I started listening to the episode on the Eastland disaster. My commute takes me right along the Chicago River, and I was right on top of the exact spot the Eastland went down when you started discussing it just between Clark and LaSalle streets. I think most Gen Xers who grew up in Chicago or had relatives from Chicago grow up knowing about two events, the Eastland disaster and the fire at the Our Lady of Angels school in 1958, probably because so many of us had grandparents who lived through both events and talked about them during our youth. I was especially gratified to hear you mention Marshall Fields helping out with the recovery effort after the Eastland went down. It was just one of the reasons so many people in Chicago were ridiculously loyal to the department store, one of the others being Fields' decision to rebuild its flagship store in Chicago after the Great Chicago Fire. Many of us were extremely upset when Fields was bought out and became a Macy's. I'm including a couple of pictures of a plaque along the Chicago River that commemorates the victims of the Eastland. Hope you enjoy. Keep up the amazing work, Julie. Uh, another listener named Anne also sent us pictures of a memorial at the Bohemian National Cemetery where 134 victims of the Eastland disaster are buried. So thanks both of you for sending these notes and these pictures. Uh, if you would like to write to us, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook dot com slash missed in history on twitter at missed in history basically all of our social media is named missed in history you can come to our parent company's website which is howstuffworks.com and get all kinds of information about whatever your heart desires and you can come to our website missed in history.com for 
show notes, a searchable archive of everything we have ever done, etc. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 